Tonight's first reading comes from John 1, verses 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through, all, uh, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light that shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Our second reading tonight is taken from 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 to 19, continuing from where we left off this morning. In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 wide and 30 high. The portico at the front of the main hall of the temple extended the width of the temple, that is 20 cubits, and projected 10 cubits from the front of the temple. He made narrow clerestory windows in the temple. Against the walls of the main hall and inner sanctuary, he built a structure around the building in which there were side rooms. The lowest floor was five cubits wide. The middle floor, six cubits, and the third floor, seven. He made offset ledges around the outside of the temple so that nothing would be inserted into the temple walls. In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. The entrance to the lowest floor was on the south side of the temple, and a stairway led up to the middle level, and from there to the third. So he built the temple and completed it, roofing it with beams and cedar planks. And he built the side rooms all along the temple. The height of each was five cubits, and they were attached to the temple by means of cedar. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you're building, if you follow my decrees, carry out my regulations and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. He lined its interior walls with cedar panels, panelling them from the floor of the temple to the ceiling and covered the floor of the temple with planks of pine. He partitioned off 20 cubits at the rear of the temple with cedar boards from floor to ceiling to form within the temple an inner sanctuary, the most holy place. 
The main hall in front of this room was 40 cubits long. The inside of the temple was cedar, carved with gourds and open flowers. Everything was cedar. No stone was to be seen. He prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. Thanks be to God for his wisdom. In the Telegraph the other day, there was an article called How to Survive a Trip to Ikea. Apparently, psychologists warn that a visit to Ikea could seriously damage your relationship. And so someone came up with a 10-step guide of how to get through it. And in case you're wondering, I will share them with you. There are 10 do's and don'ts. The first is do make a list in advance and stick to it. The second is do not follow the arrows. (laughs) Number three, do laugh at all the other couples arguing. Number four, do stop off at the cafe. Number five, don't stop off at the cafe during lunchtime. Number six, don't go on a Saturday, a Sunday, or at half term. Do dump small children at a creche. Don't buy something just because it appears to be good value. Number nine, in the market hall, keep your eyes dead ahead and do not break your stride. And number ten, without any explanation, it just said don't buy the dried elk sausage. So, I have no idea why I've never tried the dried elk sausage. But the article says that they used to say that if you could survive a long road trip with your partner, you're going to make it. But then they said, and now it's if you can survive a trip to Ikea. I've spoken to people who've been married for 30 years who've had their worst ever fight over an Ikea piece. This um, Dr. Duvasula also warned couples to be careful when purchasing this thing, which is an £820 TV storage unit, which she has dubbed the divorce maker, due to its complexity in assembling it. Now, unless you're Tim Reed, if you've ever tried to assemble something like that from Ikea or from anywhere else, then you'll probably understand what she's saying. Building something like that requires time and energy, detailed plans, and I'm sure a whole lot of patience. And if people can get stressed over building something as simple as that, imagine building a temple. Solomon built a whole temple and a palace, and it took him years to do it, obviously. But I have to confess, when I was looking at this passage from 1 Kings 6 and 7, was the original brief, I felt a bit like someone with a piece of flat-packed furniture didn't have a clue where to start because there's just so much in it. We've got a very, very detailed account of how to build a a temple in chapter 6. In chapter 7, we've got a detailed account of how to build a palace and then how to finish off the inside of a temple. Now, Feel free to look that up um, because it's very interesting and very, very detailed. But this was the fourth year of Solomon's reign that this building began. There's evidence to suggest that the preparation took place for at least three years prior to that and everything was gathered together in advance or at least started to be being cut. Now, I won't go into the details of how big it was or what it was included and what it was made of, as fun as that would be, But if you want to make one of your own, look in 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7, and the details are all there. But I do want to get a quick overview 
of what went on and why. So firstly, notice that during the construction, we're told that the word of the Lord came to Solomon. And it promised him, he promised him as soon as, if he kept the, the laws, God's laws, and he obeyed his commandments, then God would remain with Israel. And that's why they built this temple. God had required it. And after six, seven years of building, this temple, the structure at least, was finished. He also built a palace and other royal buildings, which took 13 years to build, on top of the other seven. And they were incredibly ornate. They were considerably bigger than the temple. They also took longer to complete. And some people reckon that's because there wasn't the same sense of urgency or advanced preparation. But there was more work to be done on the temple before it could be finished. So Solomon brought in somebody from Tyre, a guy called Hiram, who was a great bronze worker. and He made all sorts of things, pillars, 400 bronze pomegranates, as you do, a huge uh, 10 cubit in diameter cast sea or a big basin of water, a whole load of stuff that you'll find the details of in 1 Kings 6. And he didn't stop there. He made a whole load of stuff out of gold as well. And again, the details are down there. And then finally, after years and years and years, the temple was complete. And there are a few things about how it was made that I want us to think about. First of all, it says that the uh, temple was being built in silence. In verse 7 it says, And the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry, so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple whilst it was being built. Or the message version says, um, the temple were all dressed, the blocks for building the temple were all dressed at the quarry so that the building site itself was reverently quiet. No noise from hammers and chisels or other iron tools. The stones used to build the temple were prepared at another site. The stones were only assembled at the site of the temple. Now, probably that's because it had to be done that way. But in Proverbs 24, 27, Solomon prescribes that in all building, it's prudent to prepare the work in the field and afterwards build. But here, the preparation was extraordinarily full and exact. To such a degree that when all the different parts came together, there was nothing defective that had to be added, nothing amiss that had to be mended. It was the temple of a God of peace, and therefore no iron tool must be heard in it. Quietness and silence were essential. Some commentators reckon that Solomon wanted to communicate as much as possible that the temple was of God and not of man. Solomon didn't want the sound of man's work to dominate the site of this holy place. Picture the workmen in the quarry. Picture the moulders of the clay. Picture the artist with their engraving tool. Their names were unknown. They were unrecognised by the multitudes who would visit this temple and worship there. And those unnamed people worked with dignity and they worked hard. But none of it was without value for contribution for the final thing. Each part was needed along with all the others. Each part of the temple was important and necessary. When you're living as a Christian, often the work you do goes unnoticed. But most of all, 
we need to remember that Christians are dependent on one another. Each one is important and each one is necessary. But with the temple, each piece joined another and every separate bit found its own specific part to play in it all. Nothing but painstaking accuracy could have ensured such a wonderful result. But I imagine that no workman knew the whole design, but they probably just focused on their own bit. And in the same way, we need to be diligent in what God asks us to do. Solomon, the wise king, built a temple that was to be the focus of the worship of God. It was a huge construction project, and he used only the best materials. As we try and live holy lives for God, we should try and give of our best in worship of him. And it really was only the finest materials that was used in this building project, which is only natural because, of course, this is God's temple. So only the best material should be used. And God made the promise to Solomon in verses 11 to 13. We're told that if he, like I said before, if he obeys what he asks, then he will obey, he will fulfill the promise rather that he gave to David, your father. And it says in verse 13, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people, Israel. God promised that he would live among them, providing that they did as he asked. He promised that if Solomon was obedient to him, then he would reign and he'd be blessed and he would fulfill all the promises made to David um, and that his presence would remain with the nation Israel. Now that might not seem like a new promise because it was first made many years before, but it was a reminder and a renewal of those promises. And he said, I will live among the Israelites. God was careful not to say that he would live in their temple the way that pagans gods did. He would live among them. The temple was a special place for man to meet with God, but not a place where God should be confined. So Solomon did what God asked of him. He finished it off and he prepared the inner temple for the Ark of the Covenant to be placed. Special attention was given to it. It was completely overlaid with gold. There was gold chains. There was massive cherubim of olive wood. There was all sorts of stuff. And there was gold everywhere in this temple. He carved all the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and the outer sanctuaries. And it was just so spectacular when it was complete. The temple, like the tabernacle, was the focal point for worship, the place where God's presence was displayed. And you know, it was easy for the people of Israel to focus on the temple of God instead of the God of the temple. Yet without continued faithfulness to God, the temple's glory quickly faded. The glorious temple was plundered just five years after the death of Solomon. But this amazing temple was dark and mysterious structure, conducive to a sense of awe. It was amazing, but unfortunately, it also probably encouraged the people of the time to rely more on the outward symbol of God's presence rather than obeying his commands. But that said, what can we learn from how he built this temple? Well, first of all, when you build a temple for God, do the very best that you can. 
We've already heard about how he used the best materials and how there was so much work that went into it. And why bother with all that? Well, Solomon said, our God is greater than all other gods. The building was for God, not for man. When you build something for God, well, you make it the best that you can. Nothing can be too nice. Nothing can be too good. Only the best is what we should give. And the next thing to do when building a temple for God is to follow God's plan. As David handed over the blueprints for the temple, he told Solomon in Chronicles, All this I have in writing from the hand of the Lord upon me, and he gave me understanding in all details of the plan. Solomon didn't just gather a group of people who fancied building a temple and sat down and thought, what should we do? He used the plans given to him by David. And David didn't just think, well, I wonder how many bits of gold I can put in this place. He got it from God. God knew what he wanted. God made it known and people followed out his plans. And to be honest, I'm not sure anyone would come up with those plans themselves. They're quite detailed and they're quite intricate. And it seems that God was actually quite specific about what he did and didn't want. So when building his temple, God wants to be sure that his followers follow his design. If you ask someone to, follow, uh, to build something for you and they just added things in or took things out as they pleased, you wouldn't be right happy. Solomon wasn't building it for himself. He was building it for God, so it had to be God's plans. And the third thing to remember when building a temple for God is you need to dedicate it for his use, for his purposes, and for his glory. The house of God uh, was made as God wanted it. The temple of God was just as he'd planned. But even Solomon knew that God wouldn't live there because nothing can contain God. But as we know, the temple was uh, destroyed in 586 BC. So without a temple, where does God live now? Where did God live during all of that? There's no longer that temple in Jerusalem. But there is a temple. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You see, we are God's temple, believe it or not. And I can't look at anyone when I say this, but some temples are in better shape than others. (laughs) But we're being built together as a place where God's spirit lives. So if you're building a temple for God, you need to make sure it's the very best it can be. You need to make sure that we're following his plan. And we need to make sure that we dedicate God's temple for his use. And since that temple is you, and since it's us, let me ask, are we making that temple the best that it can be? What's the place look like inside when God comes in? Is everything as it should be? What kind of place would we want to welcome God to? Have we made it the very best for God? And since that temple is us, Let me ask, are we following his plans? How much of us reflects what God's plans are for our lives? Are we following his plans or are we just ignoring them? Do we look at them and say, I know you said you wanted me to do this, that and the next thing, but I don't really fancy that. 
And since that temple is us, are we dedicated fully to him? Do we let other thoughts reside there? Do we let other things take our attention? And you know, because we are God's temple, we're called to live out our faith into the world. That role, the role of the church is to truly get to know God, to worship him and then take what we know of God out into the world around us. We come to know God through our lived experiences, not just within the walls of this place, but outside too. There's a popular sign that a lot of churches have above their door which says, enter to worship, depart to serve. The first part is easy, the second part, not so much. Leaving the church to serve in the world in which we find ourselves, that is the difficult part. But we've got the responsibility to proclaim the word of God in our lives because we are God's temple. And someone once said, Live out the gospel when you are up and when you are down, when all is well and when all is hell. Live out the gospel when you are received and when you are nowhere believed. Live out the gospel until sinners are justified, until the devil is terrified, until Jesus is magnified, and until God is satisfied. In the days of Solomon, The temple, like the tabernacle, was the focus of worship, the place where God's presence was displayed. In the New Testament, the people of God are described as that temple. We are God's temple. So as we live out our faith in the world around us, it's important that we get our focus and priorities right. And let me read verses 11 to 13 from the message version again. It says about this temple that you're building. What's important is that you live the way I've set out for you to, for you, and do what I tell you, following my instructions carefully and obediently. Then I'll complete in you the promise I made to David, your father. I'll personally take up my residence among the Israelites, and I won't desert my people, Israel. Wherever you find yourself day by day, whether it's work, college, home, or even IKEA, live the way that God wants you to live. Do what he asks us to do. And when we live as people obedient to him, we must do our best for him. And as we try and live holy lives for God, then we should offer him the best in our worship, the worship of our everyday lives, in the things we find ourselves doing and the situations we find ourselves in. Let's give of our very best to God. Let's follow his plan and dedicate our lives wholly to him. Amen.